0: I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. And today we're delighted to have Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor as our advocate for women aging. She's a renowned grief expert, neuroscientist, and psychologist who directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab, GLASS, at the University of Arizona. Now, over a decade, she has conducted studies to better understand what actually happens in our brain when we grieve. Dr. O'Connor's recent book, I'll show it to you, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss provides a new paradigm for understanding love, loss, and learning. Mm -hmm. So based on her own trailblazing neuroimaging work, research in the field and real life stories, Dr. O'Connor integrates accessible science and practical knowledge to help us understand what happens when we grieve and how to navigate loss with more ease and grace. Welcome, Dr. O'Connor. We're again, very, very happy to have you with us.
1: Well, it's just delightful to be here and just please call me Mary Frances. <laughs> okay, thank you.
0: We will, we will. Francis, well, yeah.
1: there is so
0: much to um, try to understand about grieving from the sort of the brain's perspective and we'll do our best to to get into as much as we can in this the time we have allowed here, but let's start with Um, You know, you're a leader in the field of grief and complicated grief. So help us understand the the difference. Mm
1: -hmm. Sure. Uh, The reason I like the term complicated grief, although the newer term is prolonged grief, um, Mm -hmm. which was recently accepted by the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychiatrists and psychologists use. But the reason that I like the term complicated grief, the older term, is because it reminds me of this idea of complications. And so if you think about when you have, say, the you break a bone, say, for example, you're not actually doing something to knit those cells back together again, right? You can provide support, right? You might use a cast or crutches or something. um, But it's really your natural healing process, isn't it? And I think of this as grief as well. Grief is the natural response to loss. And over time, um, that experience changes for people. But sometimes there are complications when you're broken a bone, right? So there's a second break in the same place or you get an infection in that area. Um, And under those circumstances, it can be really helpful to have intervention Right, to help get someone back on that natural healing trajectory. And so I think of complicated grief, prolonged grief in a similar way. There's something that's gotten in the way of the typical healing that people experience. Um, and while you know intervention is not designed to take grief away, that's not that's not really possible. But it is, uh, we know, there are psychotherapies that help us to get back on that natural healing trajectory for people who have gone years and just really aren't experiencing any change over time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and you, in your book, you bring together three really important concepts, L- love, loss, and learning. And I, help, why the, why bring in those those three and how do you see them as interconnected?
1: Well, my own research into grief and grieving has made me acutely aware that first, there's a bond that happens, right, that is really genuinely encoded physically in the brain. So when you fall in love with your spouse, you fall in love with your child, um, that changes the brain physically. It changes the neurons that connect together. It changes the epigenetics. And It's only because that bond exists that when that person dies, then we experience loss. We experience grief because the the we is is missing. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so linking those two together really helped me to distinguish it from other kinds of experiences like you know, something like you get rejected, right? Uh, You give a talk and you're really nervous in front of a bunch of people who have come to see the talk. Those aren't individuals that you have a bond with, right? So it's a stressful experience, but it's not the same thing. So first there's, um, there's this bond, there's love, and then there's this experience of loss. And then the learning part really dawned on me after, a long time, uh, it really occurred to me that grieving this process of coming to understand over time that, you know, your loved one isn't there, you're not going to retire together or you're, you know, no longer, you're not going to see them graduate from high school, you know, that is a form of learning. How do I understand how to be in the world now? Now that I'm carrying the absence of this person with me, you know, and so to me, learning made it made grieving feel a little more familiar too, because we all are learning from the moment we're born.
0: Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, I think you know neuroscience, as you know, has become very uh, in the public eye, and uh, but, but I'm not sure we all really know what goes on with neuroimaging. Can you describe that process a bit?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's, um, I have great respect and just genuine gratitude for the participants who have been in the neuroimaging studies of grief that we have. And part of it is we try to explain what's going to happen, but of course they have the courage to go through, you know, uh, they trust us and, and the courage to go through these studies. So, it almost always starts with an interview where we try to understand where the person is at in their grieving process, who the person was who died, and, and often they are participating in the study to honor their loved one, which I find to be very touching. Mm-hmm. We very often ask people to bring a photograph of the person who's died or, or a couple of photographs, um, and that gives us a better chance to see who they are, but also because when we're trying to look at the reaction in the brain we need it to be very specifically about grief and so one way to do that is we take this photograph that they've given us and we put it on goggles we scan it into the computer and then display it on goggles while someone is lying in the neuroimaging scanner and it's the same kind of scanner as you know the scanner you would get a see a, a scan of your knee or a, a scan of your elbow or something Um, but this one instead of looking at bone is looking at blood flow and that blood flow tells us what parts of the brain are active and so what we're asking is what parts of the brain are active when they're looking at this person who who they're grieving who uh you know is been this bonded part of their life and is now and is now absent and we compare that activity to just looking at a picture of a person, a stranger, so that we can specifically figure out how is the brain reacting specifically around grief? And so through then some very complicated statistics and analysis, um, we're able to look at those uh, brain images of people who've been laying in the scanner, um, and we're able to look at them across a whole group of people and um, find out how the brain is in fact Creating this experience of grief we have. Are you
0: able to tell without even with from from those the neuroimaging kind of what process of grief people are in or what stage of grief?
1: No, I wouldn't say that it's that refined. I think we're really at such a basic level of trying to understand how the brain creates this experience. And so we see parts of the brain that we know are important for memory, for example, that doesn't probably surprise anyone. Um, Parts of the brain that are important for emotion, parts of the brain that are important for um, this thing I mentioned before about we, so taking another person's perspective, right? This seems to be an important part of what happens as we're, as we're grieving, is we have to understand what's my perspective and what was the other person's perspective. And then some areas that are often seen um, when people are having emotional pain, um, sort of that attention to this is really important, this, this really hurts, um and so we see areas that are related to that but we wouldn't say that uh one person one individual scan tells us very much about that individual's okay. grief but okay. more how does the brain do this in general for human beings
0: okay, okay. i was interested in in uh, in your book when you talk about memory and um and, and beliefs and one of the things you say talk about is that We have two beliefs that are mutually exclusive.
1: Can you say a bit more about that? This seems to me, this was really kind of a key understanding for me, because you hear people say, people who have experienced the death of a spouse, say, for example, they'll say, gosh, you know, I feel like they're just going to walk through the door again. Right. That's just such a familiar feeling. And, you know, they're not crazy. They can tell you, look, I know that's not actually going to happen, but it really feels like it's going to happen. And I think if you take that very seriously, that that this is their experience, then I think we can figure out in the brain why that might be. And it's this that. On the one hand, you have these memories, right? You were either there at the bedside or um, you were caring for this person as they grew more ill and maybe saw them pass away or you got the phone call, you know, whatever, or went to the funeral, whatever the memories are. Um, But on the other hand, when we bond with someone, when we fall in love, like I was describing before, there's a belief that comes along with you are now my my one and only, right? And that belief is I will always be there for you and you will always be there for me. And you don't have to be in someone's physical presence for that belief to remain true, right? We kiss each other goodbye and go off to work and go off to school every day. And it's not like we think, oh, well, they may have disappeared, right? We have this very clear understanding that they will come back or we'll go get them, you know, in some unusual circumstance. And so that belief that they are they're everlasting is really in conflict with this memory that we know they've died, right? And so those two things can't possibly both be true. And yet, the brain is using both kinds of information. I think this is part of why it takes a long time to really start predicting their absence more than predicting their presence. And so, grieving takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Gail, do you have a comment? Question at this point?
2: I'm. T- <laughs> I have a lot of questions, <laughs> and, and but but the the idea of a complicated grief in terms of what you're discussing now yeah. how, how does that fit in what makes it mm. different
1: oh that's a really great question so one of the things that we know one of the complications that can happen is that sometimes for individuals for people you know it's so painful to think about what it means that this person is gone You know, it's just so overwhelming that they actually avoid thinking about it or they avoid places that might remind them of the person or they avoid certain conversations or certain people, right? Well, that's understandable, obviously, because it is very painful. But the downside of that is that this learning I was talking about It requires experience, you know, it sounds silly, but, you know, you're not going to learn your multiplication tables if you don't practice them. Right. And similarly, if you're not really engaging in this world where your loved one is not a part of it, Mm -hmm. except in that you carry them with you. If you're not engaging in the world, you don't really have a chance to learn what does it mean for me to be in the world without this person? How do I make sense of, you know, these years we shared together given that, you know, I'm not making dinner for this person anymore. I'm not going to the movies with this person anymore and sharing really, you know, common experiences. Mm-hmm. You have to learn an avoidance can really get in the way of that learning and may in fact prolong the experience of adapting to the fact that they're not on this earthly plane
2: mm-hmm.
0: I just I know from my own experience and and many women that yeah. I've talked with Gail and I know who who almost everyone talks about this this phase not and there's no real time frame to it where they're they have trouble thinking they um don't they um, don't want to read. Reading is like I can't read right yeah. now. I just yeah. can't take in mm-hmm. uh, much external uh, stimulation. And yeah. it, it um, and so I I think what your book is so helpful. One one of the ways is that it explains why grieving, as you said, takes such a long time. Yeah. And why there's no and give yourself a year and then you'll be fine. <laughs> no.
2: No. no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, definitely not. We 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 anticipate that a year we've started to see changes, but that doesn't mean I mean for one thing, you know, grief is going to be a part of your life forever because you have always lost this person who was so important to you. So, whenever you become aware of that moment, in that moment that you've lost this person, of course you're going to feel grief. But that's different from grieving, right? So grief is sort of that momentary wave, but grieving means that over time, you may have that feeling of grief less frequently or less intensely, or Mm -hmm. even if it's the same in those ways, it feels familiar you kind of know how to work around it right you know how to work with it and so that to me is that change over time that sort of matters more um i sometimes say you know the idea that you could get over it to me is such a funny thing it's like saying when did you get over your wedding day that's right (laughs) you know which is the question doesn't make any sense. So when did you get over your husband dying or your sister dying? That's just not really a question that makes sense. But it will change your re your reaction to this this terrible loss. Your reaction will change over time. Um, and so those are a little bit different.
2: And then you're talking about
1: year I'm sorry, Gail. Go ahead.
2: And and when it's complicated. Yeah or or has more elements to it yeah then that's a way of saying perhaps you need some help perhaps you, yeah. you need to talk with someone
1: yeah or, yeah and there's some sort of specifics so there's a set of criteria that we use to sort of determine if someone is having the kind of trouble where they would need intervention and and you know the simplest the simplest piece is just how well are they able to do the things they want to in life. Mm -hmm. So that thing you were saying about reading, it is absolutely true that it's, you know, it's really hard to read. It's hard to (laughs) focus on anything. It's hard to concentrate at work. It's hard to, you know. um, And over time, that experience usually changes. Mm -hmm. So it is not usually the case that someone can never read again. Right. And so if people aren't able to engage in the things that they would like to be doing, you know, they can't get dinner on the table. Right. Or they literally have stopped going to do things with their friends. They've Mm -hmm. just completely stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. Then those are indications that something is not changing in the typical way and you know we can we can develop skills right it's grieving is learning and so we can develop more skills about how do you move into grief and how do you move out of it again uh, a good friend of mine describes it as jumping into a puddle and then jumping back out of it again and so skills like that can really help you to both have grief and also do some of the meaningful activities in your life mm-hmm. i wanted to ask you if you also talk about yearning and there's is that the same as a greeting or is that
0: the feeling of greeting?
1: I think of yearning really specifically as that sort of wanting that, that, um, wanting them to be back, right? Mm -hmm. Wanting things to be the way they were before. Some people almost experience it as physically, right? Just wanting them to be there. And so grieving is a lot of things. Grieving is you feel angry sometimes, you feel guilty sometimes, you feel um, confused or numb, right? All of those, I think, constitute grief. But yearning is very specifically that wanting, that wanting them back um, that we think of, that I think of as very similar to hunger or thirst, right? Because we know our loved ones are so important to our survival. They're as important as food and water to our survival. And so I think of that yearning as like a hunger or a thirst, Mm -hmm. that motivating force.
2: Yeah.
0: So t- tell talk to, th- to us about women because you know in our our gales in my age group, um, more women are experiencing yeah. loss of this yeah. type. Um, and uh, what what can you is, do? You have anything in particular to offer women who are mm-hmm. after sixty years or thirty years or yeah. however long it is uh, have lost a husband or a, yeah. a partner,
1: yeah. a child,
0: adult child.
1: Absolutely. I think that for the most part we see that women have bigger social networks in general than men or especially older women have bigger social networks than older men and this is actually a great source of resilience because while it is not the same as having your one and only it can provide that support sort of around the experience that you're having that sort of can hold you, like that cast we were talking about, right? It can sort of hold you while you're healing and while you're coming to learn how to be in the world now. So this is one of the great, you know, I think one of the great benefits of a lifetime of women being expected to have friendships, women being expected to um, attend to their emotional life. And, you know, in the end, I think it can be really beneficial that we have those skills then uh, when when we do face loss. Um, so that's, that's one thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think, but I think it is
1: also, I would just also add, you know, sort of the flip side of that is that women have often, um, defined themselves in terms of their caregiving roles. Mm -hmm. And so the death of a loved one, whether that's a child or a sibling or a spouse, as you say, often cuts us off from that caregiving that we are so used to doing and that can lead to the feeling of I don't know who I am if this isn't what I'm doing day to day Um, and and I think is an opportunity then for women to think about what other parts of their identity are really important to them and also um, for those who really love caregiving how else can I give care in this world even though it's not to this one person that I've been bonded to for a long time. Mm-hmm. is there anything Gail, else? i think i interrupted you i'm sorry
2: no 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 i was just wondering is
0: there anything else that you really wanted us to hear about or to have in mind uh, before we have to close
1: <laughs> well you know this this may sound silly this is sort of my own um this goes beyond just being a scientist. So I know, right, all these things that are happening in the brain, um, but I, it actually also gives me some comfort in that I recognize that this person has physically impacted me, right? That I actually carry a piece of them in my brain. And I then perceive the world through this brain that's been you know, changed by who they were and who we were. And I find that enormously comforting somehow. Um, So I offer that for people who might also resonate with that understanding.
0: Certainly gives more concrete meaning to the notion that we we will always carry this person with us. Literally, we are carrying this person with us. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, what next
0: for you and your work? Where's your
1: work taking you? Well, it's been very exciting. In writing this book, I really wanted to put this knowledge that science has generated into the hands of the individuals who could use it. And so it has meant that I have gotten to talk with a lot of people like the two of you, people who are working day to day in their own communities and their own families. And so finding other ways to really reach out, um, whether that might be developing a grief app um, or whether Mm -hmm. that might be Mm -hmm. doing additional research to really understand um, the ways that we can intervene that make the most difference for people who are really struggling. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of studies I'd like to do going forward.
0: Well, it's great say, work. Do you want something else, Gil? Go but, ahead. Yeah, Jen. I was just
2: going to say it's great work and, and important work. And, you know, we see, as you do, all of the women who suffer losses in so many different ways. And this is important to to have a conversation about this, to get it out yes. so that people can feel comfortable talking about it more than, they, right. you know, some, sometimes they want to stop at a certain they say, "Okay, I've been grieving already for a year. I, I shouldn't yeah. be talking about this anymore." Well, you know, some of the things that you've said here today, I think, are very comforting yeah. to those who grieve because you don't have to stop.
1: That's right; it continues to evolve. That's yeah. right; it's always a part of you. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One
0: one, uh, one of our other recent advocates is uh, Dr. Pauline Boss, and she's she talks about the myth of of closure, which yeah. is something that you alluded to as well. Yeah. That it's just uh, getting over it or, um, you know, closing things up. It's just, it's not, it's harmful. Yeah. Really harmful. Yeah. That your brain just can't do it. Doesn't need to. It doesn't
1: reflect people's lived experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Thank well, you. we uh, will look
0: forward to your app, <laughs> your grief app, <laughs> grief app <laughs> and anything else you put out there for the public. We really, really. Uh, delighted to have you with us today and thank you so much
1: thank you and thanks for bringing this conversation to people it's our pleasure
2: thanks Mary francis